Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, foo followers everywhere. Welcome to the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast, season four, episode 45. My name is Ben Johnson. Thank you so much for joining me and checking out the show. If you would like to keep up to date with all the latest martial arts, movie news, reviews and podcasts, then visit KungFuMovieGuide.com and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We also have a newsletter which you can sign up to and we run monthly competitions in the newsletter. That is the best way to get your hands on lots of cool free prizes. Become a registered Foo follower today by heading over to KungFuMovieGuide.com. Type in your email address when prompted and then verify your email address and then we will do the rest. If you have any questions whatsoever, please remember that you can always contact the show by using the email address hello at KungFuMovieGuide.com. Okay, thank you everyone for downloading this episode of the show. We have a Shaw Brothers old school Kung Fu movie special for you today, celebrating the life and career of one of its great stars, Alexander Fusheng. We will be talking to his biographer, that's the writer and Shaw Brothers expert, Terence J. Brady. So, without any further ado, let's get on with the show. Here we go. Well, if you're really so determined to have a fight, then I'll oblige. hello 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 ladies and gentlemen boys and girls foo followers everywhere welcome back to the kung fu movie guide podcast and what a pleasure it is to be talking to you today whether you're new to the show whether you come here often if you do welcome back thank you so much for checking out the show listen we have a very special show for you today it's a celebration of the life and career of one of hong kong cinema's biggest stars the always charming and affable and enigmatic kung fu movie star alexander fusheng alexander would have turned 65 yesterday on the 20th of october 2019 so it seemed only appropriate that we use today's show to share with you this conversation that I had with Fu Sheng's biographer, Terence J. Brady, or Tico, as he is known online. Terry's book is called Biography of the Chinatown Kid. It is a meticulously researched biography, and it took Terry six years to complete. It came out about a year ago, and it's available right now on Amazon. You can also head to the website fushengbio.com, where you'll find more information about the book and links to buy. I do urge you to grab yourself a copy if you haven't already. It's the first English-language biography of the late, great action film star, who was a huge name in Hong Kong during his very short lifetime and never, unfortunately, achieved the same kind of international recognition that was bestowed upon other huge martial arts stars like Bruce Lee, and then, of course, later Jackie Chan and Jet Li and so on. And this is mostly to do with the fact that Fu Sheng was a contract player at the Shaw Brothers studio. Once the Shaw Brothers obviously stopped producing films in the mid-'80s, it became very hard to get hold of Fu Sheng's movies internationally, unless you did know someone who could get hold of some bootleg VHS copies of his films. If you did know someone who could do that, then more often than not, they were in quite poor condition and quite a poor quality. So as a result, Fu Sheng's star has slightly faded over the decades while others have taken his place. However, luckily, when the Chinese company Celestial Pictures 
bought the Shaw Brothers catalogue of films and they started to release these pristine digitised versions of the Shaw Brothers titles on DVD. This would have been around the early 2000s. It managed to finally reintroduce these movies to a whole new audience and a lot of these titles have now found their way onto streaming platforms, so places like Netflix and particularly Amazon Prime. It is an absolute treasure trove of high quality Shaw Brothers films and a lot of Alexander Fouché's work can now finally be easily accessed and seen in top quality so I do urge you to go ahead and do that. It is great because it's fair to say that Fu Sheng at the time was the poster boy for Shaw Brothers' unique brand of action cinema throughout the 1970s and early 80s. He was a huge star and he was a prime target for the paparazzi in Hong Kong as he was married to the superstar Taiwanese singer Jenny Tseng. The two were very much the posh and becks of their day, I guess. And he remains very famous indeed in Hong Kong right up to his tragic and untimely death at the very young age of 28. He died in a car crash in 1983. His career spanned only 11 years. However, he did appear in 43 complete films during that time, some of which are considered as some of the best kung fu movies that the Shaw Brothers produced. So movies like Sun Chung's The Avenging Eagle or Choi Yuen's Heroes Shed No Tears. During his career, he worked most consistently with the filmmaker Chang Che. He would go on to make 28 films with Chang Che, which is a crazy amount of films when you think about it. Uh, and it really does highlight the rate at which they were producing films at the Shaw Brothers studio during this period. Some of the titles that Fu Sheng worked on with Chang Che are some of their best work and includes the so-called Shaolin cycle of films. This includes movies like Heroes 2, Men from the Monastery, Disciples of Shaolin, Five Shaolin Masters, Shaolin Temple, all of which featured sublime fight choreography from Tonga and Lao Ga Lung. Lao, of course, would later go on to become one of the best kung fu movie makers around, responsible, of course, for the absolute classic, the 36th Chamber of Shaolin. Uh, Lao was Fu Sheng's kung fu teacher and he would later use Fu Sheng brilliantly in a number of his own projects including films like Legendary Weapons of China in 1982 and of course the excellent film The Eight Diagram Pole Fighter which many fans would argue is probably one of the greatest if not the greatest kung fu movie ever made. Fu Sheng sadly died during the production of Eight Diagram Pole Fighter and Lao had to quickly alter the film's ending and as a result the film has a particular power and intensity that you don't see in many of Lao Garlung's other movies. Head over to KungFuMovieGuide.com if you want to read any reviews of many of Fu Sheng's films and there is also a longer biography of Fu Sheng if you want to learn more about his work and his life. Terry's book of course does provide a, a great insight not just into the life and work of Alexander Fu Sheng but also many of the other very talented people and uh, actors and filmmakers who found themselves working with Fu Sheng at Shaw Brothers during this time period. Since the book's release last year Copies have since been donated to the Hong Kong Film Archive to preserve the book and also as a library resource. And in August, Biography of the Chinatown Kid was listed in Book Authority's Best New Martial Arts Books of 2019. So this was great to be able to geek out a little bit with Terry and talk in more detail about Alex and his life and these classic Shaw Brothers Kung Fu movies because I did realise that in doing this episode that despite the fact that this podcast is called The Kung Fu Movie Guide, it's not actually very often that I do get to sit down and discuss classic Hong Kong martial arts films with someone. So if that is your bag, and I'd imagine it probably is if you are listening to this show, uh, then hopefully you will find a lot to enjoy about this conversation that is coming up. Before I do throw over to my chat with 
Terry, I did just want to recommend an Australian documentary which has just arrived onto Amazon Prime and is very much connected to what we're discussing on today's show. The documentary is called Iron Fists and Kung Fu Kicks. We've been talking about this one quite a bit since its festival run earlier in the year over on our social media channels. It's from the director Serge U and the producer Veronica Fury who made the Electric Boogaloo documentary in 2014 all about canon films which is another excellent documentary this is a very fast-paced and thorough look at how kung fu films have influenced different cultures around the world using the shaw brothers and hong kong cinema in general very much as the starting point and showing how its influence spread into America through New York's grindhouse cinemas and then later influencing breakdancing and hip-hop and in France where Jackie Chan's stunt work and free running would then help to influence the principles of parkour uh, and now into the world of YouTube and social media which is being used very much as a springboard to launch new action film careers. So I did see this the other day and I enjoyed it very much so I did just want to flag it up to you guys listening not least because it does feel feature quite a few people who have appeared on this very podcast which was really nice to see so people like scott adkins and amy johnston juju chan diana lee and asanto don the dragon wilson the bruce lee biographer matthew polly the director ross boyask all of which have appeared on this show plus people like uh, cheng pei pei and samo hung uh, interviewed in the documentary so that's really great to see so definitely go and check that out it does also feature some really interesting behind the scenes archival stuff filmed at the Shaw Brothers studios footage that I had certainly never seen before and it does include a rather uh, polite and typically British BBC style interview with Sir Run Run Shaw which must have been filmed in the early 70s I'd imagine but uh, Run Run was of course one of the founders of the Shaw Brothers studios and was very much the man in charge at Shaw Brothers and it's a really fascinating period of history and it is told really rather well in that documentary so that's called Iron Fist and Kung Fu Kicks it is available now to stream on Amazon Prime Okay, it's Fusheng time. Terence J. Brady is a writer based out of Florida. His book is called Biography of the Chinatown Kid. It is available to buy right now for contact details, links to his Fusheng Facebook group and also links to buy the book. Head over to www.fushengbio.com I will be back at the end of the show to do my usual sign off but until then I will now head over to my conversation with Fusheng's biographer Terence J. Brady and because we are discussing the Shaw Brothers there only is really one piece of music that we could use to lead into this conversation and that is of course the studio's much beloved intro music so take it away I guess the first question that I wanted to ask you, Terry, was why Alexander Fusheng? Why write a, a book about him and his life? Well, that's a good question. I mean, the martial arts film genre is such a niche market yeah. now, and the average man on the street might know Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan, but not much more. Um, it has expanded over the years, you know, thanks to artists like Jet Li and Donnie Yen, Tony Jaa, yeah. you know, John Clark, etc. But if you mention the Shaw Brothers, most will look at you like a deer in headlights, yeah. you know, Shaw Brothers, who's that, you know? Um, the Shahs, the Shahs were, you know, more than filmmakers. They were visionaries. They uh, they built an empire from nothing, and unlike ancient Rome or Greece, you know, with the scattered runes, we had their, their grandeur captured on celluloid. Yeah. Um, but outside of Hong Kong, outside of Southeast Asia, they're still relatively unknown, and I wanted to do something about yeah. that. So you know, I think they're, they're Tom Cruise, they're, they're A-lister, you know, Fu Shang, and compiled the story of his life and career and presented it to hopefully a new audience, a new generation of film fans who will then further explore the magic of Shaw. This is someone who was a huge, huge superstar in Hong Kong during his life, albeit a, a short life, but he is not well known in the West at, at all, is he, really? That must have been a reason to put this book together. When I... 
I started the book, I had two primary goals. Uh, the first was bringing something new to the table. I mean, what's the point of cranking out a new product if you're only regurgitating the same yeah. old, same old info? Yeah. And uh, not only did I want to do this with Alex and Jenny, but for each talent that I wrote about, I wanted to encompass the whole, you know, the Shaw system and all the, all the people that were working with him. So, you know, it could be new quotes or new background info. Um, in either event, I wanted even the most knowledgeable Shaw fan to walk away from this book having learned something new. So new info was one goal, and the other was to verify my research with multiple sources and kind of dispel misinformation. There's a lot of that floating around, especially the Internet. But then that begs the question, doesn't it, Terry, because you're writing about a subject here who died 83. People closest to him, whether it's Run Run Shaw, Chang Che, Lao Ga Lung, these guys have all passed away now, and a lot of those Shaw guys are, you know, they're getting older and it's, it's, it's hard to go direct to the source. How did you find mm. actually compiling this thing and researching thing? And and and, and don't forget, this is an English language book as well. So you've you've right. then you've got that right. language issue to get around as well. So I'm interested in how you you managed to compile and research this this book. Well, you know, when I when I set out to read to write the book, I kind of tackled it like an article. I was going to chat up a bunch of people who work with Alex and family members. You know, they open their doors wide and. I would take notes like a stenographer, you know, six months and I would have a first draft. Uh, never did I imagine this would take be more like a, a dissertation and I would spend six years on it. You know, it was crazy. I mean, I don't speak the language. So I had to get a lot of articles translated. And it wasn't just getting articles translated. There was just that language barrier there that people didn't know who I was. And they were like, well, you know, they really didn't want to talk to yeah. me, especially the Chung family. I, I understand they're very private bit reserved and they certainly had no idea who I was so perhaps they thought of me as just an you know overzealous fanboy who eventually go away <laughs> <laughs> because the family is so so vast I think he's the ninth child of 11 children but then his dad had children with other families did you go to the, the to the brothers and the, the, the sisters his actual family then to try and contact them directly yes I, I reached out to several members of his family um the family did not want to publicly comment on the book for a variety of reasons, and I learned to respect uh, their privacy on that. During my early research, one of Alex's brothers passed. I remember seeing a photo of the mom in you know traditional Chinese dress, very elegant. She, I think she just celebrated her 96th or 98th birthday. Looks great wow. for her age. Anyway, so I saw this photo of her on the and on the table, some flowers. And there were two framed pictures of her children. Now, she has, like you said, 11 kids, but only two photos on the table. So I zoomed in and realized the photos were Alex and his recently deceased brother, Edmund. That's when it clicked that these were you know, real people with real emotions. Mm -hmm. And no matter how famous Alex was as an actor, he was first and foremost someone's son. Yeah. And I learned to tread very lightly afterwards. You have to balance, I guess, telling a story which is you know, as impartial and factually accurate as possible but you do have to remember this is someone's kid, you know, <laughs> at the end of the day. So, right. And, and right. that, as a biographer, you, you've got quite a big responsibility there, haven't you, I guess? Well, yeah, I mean, and, you know, there are certain things you, you have to decide, like, what do, you, what do you put in there and what do you not mm. put in there? Um, obviously, Alex is not alive, so I can't just, you know, talk to him directly. And everyone's opinion, I mean, it varies depending upon what they remember. So um, it, it was, you know, I went through multiple drafts. Um, trying to kind of get a nice balance in there. And that's why I kind of peppered it with uh, also the bios of Chang Che and Lago Long and all the other people that worked with him, just to kind of get an overall picture of, you know, the, of him as a, as a person and then as, as an actor. I'm terribly sorry, my lord. My disciple didn't mean to hurt you. <laughs> what was your earliest memories of actually seeing Fu Sheng? Um, you know, I grew up in New York City and in the 70s, and, you know, there's a there's a thing about, you know, going to see the, the movies in Times Square in the 70s, and people kind of uh, make it sound like it's this um, fantastical place like Disneyland. I'll tell you what, in the 70s in Times Square, it was seedy, okay? You yeah. had a bunch of dope pushers, and the, the theater smelt like urine. I mean, people will try to, you know, uh, sugarcoat it, make it seem like it's a really nice place, but it wasn't. It, it was it was something, you know, you kind of like how to watch your back. Yeah. You know, I saw a lot of Shaw movies, a lot of independent films. 
Um, the one movie that I do recall was Chinatown Kid. Yeah. Um, it's possibly one of my favorite films of his. Um, it's, it's not his best per se, but, you know, that's all subjective anyway. Yeah. But there is a sentimental nostalgia fa factor about the film. Yeah. Um, the film had the potential to be even better than it was. The Shaw Brothers, they pride themselves in keeping everything under their control, you know. Mm -hmm. They had their own dubbing and editing teams on site to create versions of films for markets with uh, different standards. So in many cases, there were at least two or three slightly different versions yeah. of films created. Anyway, you got these two different versions of Chinatown Kid, one that he dies and one that he doesn't die. But in Chang Che's um, memoirs, he alludes to a third possible ending, which uh, Cha uh, Fu Sheng's character is killed at sea at a, a, like a high-speed chase. So if Chang Che had shot more footage in the U.S. and included that alluded third, alluded third ending to his final product, um, that would have been the ultimate version of, of the movie. Mm -hmm. I mean... You can kind of imagine, uh, you know, Alex battling the white dragons on Alcatraz or having a high-speed boat chase in the Frisco Bay with the, the frogs yeah. around the Golden Gate Bridge in the background. You know, sort of like Police Force a few years back. Yeah. Um, I'm not a big in-studio fan. I know Chang was similar to Hitchcock and that he liked to have control and location shoots could be very unpredictable. I just, I just think if he had shot more locally... And incorporated that into the final product, that would have been the, the ultimate, you know, version film for me. Some of those films, when they do actually, you know, break free almost of the of the studio, you know, it's so refreshing to see, isn't it? And I know there's a little bit of B-roll, isn't there, in Chinatown Kid, where they are actually, you know, where they say they're supposed to be. Oh, yeah, yeah. And like I, I mentioned in the book, you know, Chang was kind of watching over his shoulder. He didn't want people to know what he was doing. He was just trying to shoot that, the, the quickie, you know, kind of gorilla style filmmaking yeah. and yeah. get in and out. And, you know, it was nice, but then the rest of the movies, you know, I mean, there's a scene where Alex is driving a car and the steering wheel is on the, on the wrong side. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, technically it's on, for Britain it's on the right side. Yeah. But, you know, for America it's like, no, it, that's not. That's, that's not quite right. right. So, yeah. There must have been something that grabbed you about Alex. I mean, what did he have, do you think, that, that, that you know, made him such a, a strong screen presence? I don't know. I mean, I was in high school when I was watching a lot of these films. I'm not sure what it is that grabbed me about Fu Shang or if even it grabbed me back then. I, mean, I really don't recall. When he died in 83, I, I, I wasn't aware of it. I yeah. didn't find out till I don't know, maybe 2000 or something. Mm. I, I kind of got out of the scene. I wasn't watching those movies for a while. And when I found that he died, I was like, wow, really? And then that's when I started researching these, these uh, actors and you know, back in 2000 there was not a whole lot of information on the internet at the time so I kind of just it took time to kind of you know just to, to find information on these people he died so young he was 28 when he died obvious parallels yeah. are drawn with Bruce Lee you know they were obviously working and living in Hong Kong at the same time weren't they well um, you know Alex was just a kid when, when Bruce Lee was working now one of the rumors, one of the biggest rumors out there about Fu Sheng is that he owned Bruce Lee's house. Yeah. Okay. So I remember reading that somewhere, and I've always taken that as truth. Where did that story come from? Well, you know, I mean, like I said, you can continue to repeat a lie becomes perceived truth over time. Yeah. Alex's family home was roughly five minutes from 42 Cumberland Road, okay? Yeah. Um, a child in front of Alex said they would see Bruce jogging in the neighborhood when they were teenagers, you know. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what started that rumor that Alex owned Bruce's house, but yeah. it certainly made for a good story, you know. Yeah. Had, uh, yeah two, fa two famous martial arts actors, you know, sharing the same abode. They die a premature death. Um, got to be the house, right? Yeah. Had yeah. Feng, shui, feng shui or something, yeah. yeah. He sent five bucks or whatever the fee was to the, the Hong Kong land registry, and you discovered that his home was owned by the same company since 94. Yeah. And when Alex died, he wasn't he wasn't living there, didn't own the house. It's not as, as exciting. It sounds more cool. That, yeah, he lives in Bruce Lee's house. But it's, it, sorry, sorry, she's the French, but it's bullshit. Yeah. You know, but people want to embrace that, you yeah. know, because it's cool sounding. Yeah. The same thing with, uh, you know, Alex lived in, in Hawaii. And, you know, he went to high school there, graduated high school. Again, BS. And I went into great detail about that in my book. Um, mm. But people, people don't want to do the research. They don't want to know the truth sometimes. They just like, you know, the what sounds cool and yeah. they'll continue to believe in those stories even though I wrote that it's not on the streets of San Francisco in Chinatown only the strong survive and the new kid in town doesn't stand a chance 
unless he's got the strength and speed of martial arts master Alexander Fusheng. The Run Run Shaw presents the Chinatown Kid. Our struck me as a very unassuming individual. Yeah. He didn't embrace the idea that he was a movie star. He was just, you know, a regular guy with a cool job and a popular girl. And I, I, I'm not sure, but I wonder if he would have been a bit embarrassed that someone would dedicate six years to writing a book about yeah. his life. <laughs> a good friend of Alex has told me that uh, Alex would have dedicated the book to his sister, Eva. Um, they were very close, and she has been a saint, he said, to their mother and father over the years. You know, she's still alive. Yeah. And I see photos of, of the family at, you know, various functions on Facebook, et cetera. And, um, yeah, so he said he would, Alex would definitely dedicated the book to her if he was alive yeah yeah very humble and i think there's a quote in the book that you referenced there where i think he says something like you know i'm not really into acting i'm doing this because you know it's a fun thing uh so you do wonder where he would have gone with his life well yeah i mean like it's like like you, you said that he may have not wanted to continue and people people compare him to jackie all the time yeah. okay um it's it's a comparison of apples and oranges. I mean, they were both very talented, successful players in their own right. Jackie had a different skill set than Alex, coming from a, a Peking opera background. His his stunts put him on the map, and by showing the outtakes in his films, that was him, and now the stunt double, and endeared him to the viewing public. But, uh, you know, something Jackie had that Alex didn't was creative freedom. Yeah. Jackie wasn't under the iron grip of Shaw, no. right? You have the repetitive Shaolin Temple films and mythical... Chinese heroes of past empires, uh, the, the local viewers longed for something new. So the Canto comedies filled the bill for escapism, and Jackie took the bull by its horn and ran with that. And Alex didn't have that freedom Jackie did. If he did, you know, maybe he would have done the same thing. But unfortunately, Alex did sustain some major injuries, mm. the Black Septembers, and uh, that was slowing him down. And he had, he wouldn't have been able to keep up with Jackie's physical, physical attributes, I don't mm -hmm. think. So, yes, going behind the camera would have been his one way to continue his uh, his star power, yeah. I suppose. Is that one I bastard here? Who the hell are you? You dare call our boss that? He came from quite an affluent background his, his dad was in, incredibly prolific and well known as uh he was involved in in business in hong kong wasn't he well yeah business and politics yeah, um yeah you know when alex was born he uh, people say that that he came from a wealthy family his family was not wealthy originally mm. okay his mm. his father um you know he came to new territories uh to help his father who had started up a, a small grocery business and after, you know, during the war, you know, they had the, the, the Japanese, you know, they took over Hong Kong. And things were very hard for them. And they started a family in the 40s. And then over time, you know, they started getting a little bit of money together. But then the, if you read the book, you know, they had two big fires in the marketplace in 55 mm -hmm. or 56. Um, that's, that's the turning point for his, his dad. His dad started helping out the locals and, you know, started, you know, helping them, you know, reestablished their businesses and because he had an English language, you know, background, he can, you know, he can discuss things with the British who were yeah. in control at the time. Yeah. And that, that gave him an edge. That gave him an edge of a lot of the, the local guys. He was very close to the British colonial powers, but he earned the respect of the people living in Hong Kong as e well, didn't he? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. He he was able to do both. Um, and, you know, over time, you know, with this, with shrewd investments and so forth, you know, he built up his wealth. But the funny thing is about Alex is that he never wanted any part of that money. You know, mm. he, he kind of set, he set it on his own. He wanted to do his own thing. He didn't like school. He was all the other siblings, you know, they went to college, but he didn't. And he made his own path. And yeah. I mean, during it, he, he wasn't making a lot of money when he first started, but that's why Chang, you know, Che would give him you know, a little allowance here and there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, his, his dad was a very, his dad's still alive, a very powerful, prolific person in new territories. Yeah. And, uh, beyond just business he could easily have just followed the family line i know a lot of his brothers and sisters went into the professions but his interests were were elsewhere weren't they yeah um i, I just like i said he just uh, it wasn't in school i mean it never was i mean i spoke at length with one of his brothers about that um 
David, um, he, he was very smart. He, he went to a private school, I understand. But, mm. you know, Alex just went to the local public schools. And, you know, he would get into trouble because he was, he was bored, you know, basically. Yeah. But he was really good at sports. Yeah. He was, he was, he was a great 100-meter runner. And he loved track and field. And he excelled at pretty much anything that he did. So if he, if he applied himself, he could have been an incredible lawyer or a doctor, I bet. You know, because he just, he, just, he just did well at whatever he chose to do. Yeah. I think yeah. that's why Lago Long, you know, really liked him, you know. Um, as a student because he would just pick up stuff like it was mm. nothing so it hits 1971 was he 17 18 around that age and he decides to sign up for this new group of talent that Shaw Brothers did I didn't realise this so this was like a regular thing that you know Run Run Shaw the owner of Shaw Brothers would would go out and recruit schools of new cast members I, I think it was you know kind of a bit of an open call thing like you know you go and you apply and and, and they decide if they're if you're gonna be accepted or not. I know that um, you know Alex's family is is very close to this day with uh, David Zhang, okay, or John, as as you know that he's known today. Yeah. So he's already you know in the fold with Chang Che. So I think Alex had like an, at least you know like an upper hand in that that he was his family was you know was connected to a big Shaw star to begin with, and um, that certainly um, kind of helped him get into it into the school yeah. and I, I know that when he was when he was doing his screen test that he kind of flubbed it a little bit and then right. uh it was sun chung who kind of said okay you know you can do another take just sort of explaining where shaw brothers were at in the early 70s i mean they pretty much had sewn up all of you know the hong kong film and television industry aren't they really i mean they they're making their own movies but but importantly they they owned a lot of the cinemas as well so you know they were producing the content and then they were showing the content as well so right yeah yeah they, they were they were pretty much the only game in town until um you know raymond came along and, and created golden harvest and and that's you know initially what be yeah, i'm gonna say the decline of shaw but it's it certainly turned the tide and before yeah. they had no, no competition Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, hey, hey! You really should be ashamed. You call that a punch? Without Chang Che, there's no Alexander Fusheng. You know, this, this is the director that sort of took him under his wing clearly saw some raw talent from from this kid who had only just signed up uh, to Shaw Brothers. Tell us a little bit about Chang Che. He is the, the kind of godfather of uh, kung fu movies, isn't he? <laughs> really, so many great films. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I love, I love Chang Che's films. I have like uh, 88 or 90 of his 94 films. Yeah. He was, like you said, the godfather of Hong Kong cinema. Yeah. I mean, he, he brought... Without, I, I can't imagine Shaw Brothers without Chang yeah. Che. I mean, you know, we've got some great directors at Shaw, but Chang Che was truly, um, you know, the, the backbone. And this is something your book really brings out to the fore, is just how many films these guys made. Alexander Fu Sheng is making, you know, two, three, four sometimes films all at the same time. So they really worked their actors, didn't they, Shaw Brothers? Oh, yeah. And that's one of the reasons why um, Chen Kuan Tai, you know, he, he quit. Yeah. Um, he, he, you know, broke his contract because he was figuring out, like, you know, he was, he was basically working 
uh, almost 24 hours a day. He was getting very, very few hours sleep. And he said, no, I've made so many films in my contract, you know, Sean, you know, I'm, I'm done. They were assembling line production, just like, you know, Ford or GM. They were just cranking them out yeah. like nobody's business. Yeah. Your book says Alexander Fusheng appeared in 43 complete films over 11 years. Yeah. So, you know, that's right. that's averaging four films a year or something. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of films. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. I don't know how they kept track either. I mean, you know, you're on this, this set, you know, doing this character, and then three hours later on another set doing another yeah. character. When I talked to Lo Mong, I mean, he, he looked at me like, like, how do you know so much about my movies? I don't remember these movies. I mean, he was, he was flabbergasted. Yeah. He's like, I would show him like pictures, like, this is you, and then we'll shout in, da, 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 da. He looked at me like, what? Why do you know yeah. all this? <laughs> like, don't you have a life? <laughs> so I guess, to them, it was just a job, you know. And here we are, all these Uber fans, like, oh yeah, yeah, I know, I know exactly what you do on this day. Yeah, they just they must think we're crazy. I don't know. <laughs> the other important figure in in Fu Sheng's professional career was Lao Garlong. Worked very closely mm-hmm. with Chang Che, obviously on those Shaolin films. He basically taught Fu Sheng, you know, how to look great as a as an on screen fighter. Yes, Lagerlang was definitely Alex's, you know, primary sifu, and um, you know they had their ups and downs. You know, when Chang Che and Lagerlang split, um, and with '75 or whatever it was, Marco Polo, um, Alex and, and and his sifu kind of also split up a little bit. They, you know, Alex wanted to stay with Chang Che, mm-hmm. and they felt a little betrayed. But you know, it's like kind of parents having a divorce. You yeah. know, who do I go with? My mom or my dad? So. But, you know, he came back and, you know, they obviously made the movies together. Lago Long himself, I mean, not only does a book need to be made about this guy, but a movie needs to be made about yeah. him because he, he, the history, the history that, you know, going back to Wong Fei Hu and so forth, I mean, it's, it, it needs to be told. Yeah. And I've spoken to his daughter about it, and they said at this time they don't have, you know, any uh, plans to make a book or anything like that, or definitely not a movie, but um, it's something that has to be done. I, think. Well, I hope to see it before, you know, my life. Well, Terry, there's your there's your second book. I think you've just uh, no, <laughs> I think you've just pitched it. <laughs> I don't have six years of my life. Yeah. To give away. <laughs> I'm tired, you know. For on-screen fight choreography as well. I mean, Alexander Fusheng never looked better than when you know he was working with Lao Garlong. Do you think that's that's fair to say that? Yeah, oh, he definitely improved. I mean, when I watched, when I, when I was doing my research, I watched his, watched his movies in production order, not release order. Um, I got the production dates from someone at Shaw. And so I watched him mature on screen as an actor and a martial artist. And I think for the disciples of Shaolin, he really hit his stride. It was like, it went all of a sudden like, bam. He was like, you know, just this guy in the back doing a little swinging arm kung fu stuff. And then... When he gets to the Disciples of Shaolin, that's when it really pops. Yeah, in. yeah. And then, you know, then you Eagle and so forth. Disciples of Shaolin, I mean, that's such a wonderful film. If someone didn't know who he was and you were like, right, here's, here's the film you got to go to first, would, would you reckon that's probably the one? You know, like, I mean, I like Chinatown Kid. I mean, there's so many, so many movies. There's too many. <laughs> the, one I would rec- the one I would probably recommend um, to people who have never seen him before would be Avenging Eagle. Um, the, the reason, I mean, like I said, I watched watch these films in production order and after watching like 25 changing change Chang films in a row i moved on to sung chung's avenging eagle and it was quite the eye opener i'm not, yeah. not saying you know sung chung is, is better than chang Chai at all i'm not saying that um but it was just a breath of fresh air you know imagine eating chicken for 25 straight days and have steak well avenging eagle was like a 32 ounce porterhouse you know <laughs> the action <laughs> the action choreography of tongue guy and his brother coupled with sun's direction the uh the colorful characters, the story, and more importantly, it was Alex's kind of still waters run deep persona. I mean, before he was always like this, you know, this kind of clown kind of guy. Yeah. But like he was, he was like this broody, serious actor. I mean, he had a plan, and he wasn't being all flippy and, and silly and stuff. So that that movie definitely is one that I would recommend to someone who's new to, yeah. to these these films. Oh! <laughs> you help me, and we'll split the money. Ah! He had a real natural charm about him, didn't he? Like you do watch him on screen, and he does he does light up the the films that that he's in. Well, yeah, and, and one of his friends I talked to, um, he said when you see Alex on screen, you're seeing Alex, yeah, the, the real Alex. Okay, like Bruce Lee and Jackie Chan, you know, they put on a good show, but Alexander he put on a good show, but that was also that was Alex. Yeah. So 
if you want to get to know what Alex was like, just watch one of his, one of his yeah. movies. That was Alex, you know? That was him. We should say a little bit about Fong Sayok. This is a real-life martial artist that Fu Sheng was, was playing. He brought this iconic, cheeky grin and swagger to the role. He looks great, doesn't he, with his fan, and he's wearing his white sort of kung fu robes, and he just looks the best. You know, he looks the best. Those Shaolin films were drawing on a lot of real stories. Yeah, and the, the weird thing is, Chang Che said in his memoirs he really didn't care about being you know historically accurate. He was writing about these characters and he was saying they were from the South Shaolin, but he doesn't even think the South Shaolin Temple existed. This was an actual an article yeah. from '75 that I translated. I'm like, what are you talking about, Chang? You know, you just <laughs> you're making a movie, but you're not sure if it exists yeah. or not. I'm like, so you, you got to take everything with a grain of salt with yeah. these films. It's like some of, some of the you know places and the names is like. Is it half truth? I mean, there's so much history there, and you don't know how much is actually factual and how much is just been made up over the years. He did remain loyal to Chang Che. You mentioned in your book about potentially working with Yen Wu Ping. He was constantly being given offers from outside. Do you think it, it was a detriment to his career that he did stay so loyal to Chang Che individually, but also Shaw Brothers? I respect Fu Shang for for sticking with Chang Che. I mean, all those years. Um, I'm not sure, you know, the reasons why he stayed with him so long. I mean, you know, like 25 straight thumbs. I mean, yeah, I mean, if he, if he, it, well, he couldn't really break his contract. I mean, now he, he started out in uh, 72, okay, and he had a standard five-year contract, but then they expanded three more years because he went over to Taiwan and worked with Shen Gong. So that's eight years. So that's 1980 now. Mm. Um, he was getting these offers in 78, 79, so Technically, you know, if he broke his contract, you know, Shaw probably would have sued to that. Mm. I mean, you know, I would assume that he did that with Chen Kuan Tai. But, you know, when he, in 1980, he could have easily just said, you know, I'm done. And he did get offers in, in 80. I mean, big money offers. But maybe the, it's just that he um, was so comfortable with, with the Shaw system that he didn't want to leave it. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, that could have been a detriment. He could have went, went over to Hollywood. Now, he did. He was talking, supposedly, he was talking to someone in Hollywood, a friend of his said that someone from uh, Warner Brothers had contacted him in 83. What what exactly they were talking about, I'm not sure, but he may have come over, you know, to America eventually and uh, could have made a few films over here. There's two major injuries that he suffers, isn't there, in, in quite short space, space of time. Can you explain a, a bit about that, Terry? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously Alex had a lot of various injuries over the years, but the two big ones were Black September. Um, he had one in September of 78 and September of 79, which it just was, was flukes. Mm. Um, the first one, 78, to me was the more serious of the two injuries. Tara Huey, she was on the set that day when Alex lost his balance and he cracked his head on a stage prop. Mm. Now, I've seen photos over the years of him wearing a neck brace, but I didn't realize the severity of, it, of his injuries until researching the book. A, a tendon, which connects muscle to bone, I believe, his neck was partially torn, and further tearing may have led to paralysis, so, you know, worst-case scenario. And the trauma to his head also affected his vision for a few days, his cranial bleeding inside. And, you know, they came very close to operating to remove the clot. Um it was potentially, you know, some serious, yeah. you know, injury there. Yeah. His second injury, which happened the following September, um, he broke his leg, his right leg, one leg. People keep saying he broke two legs. He broke one leg, his right leg. Let me clarify that for everyone's listening. One leg. And he was out of work longer, okay, but it was just a broken leg. And yeah. as I mentioned in the book, he made it worse than it was by hopping out of his hospital bed like the third day, and then he got some bone splints in his leg, and they had a go through a second operation with bone splints. So those two injuries were, were definitely kind of reality hitting, hitting yeah. the wall, so to yeah. speak. Uh, prior to that, he was, you know, he was, they used to call him Superman, but he just, he just did things and he was kind of a rubbery kid and could bounce off walls, no issue. And then when he had those two incidents, they kind of slowed him down and kind of took a, took a lot out of him, I think. He found himself not working, <laughs> you know, which must have been strange. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he got kind of lazy, and, you know, he put on some yeah. weight, and it just, you know, and, and he saw, and most importantly, he saw, like, when he got injured, you know, people started, you know, work continued, and they went about their business, and, like, he lost out on projects and so forth, and, I mean, I guess that kind of, you know, kind of disillusioned him a little bit, like, he was he was going to do this film or that film, and then the films, they didn't wait for him, they, they continued on with their schedule. <laughs> I've killed many men with this pole. 
But still, I don't want to kill you yet. We haven't mentioned Jenny Seng just yet, but his marriage was kind of on the rocks. She was a big singer. I mean, she still is. She's still, I mean, I hate to say this, but she was a a bigger superstar than Alex was. I mean, she was, she was known worldwide where Alex was just known, you know, locally. Um, But, you know, I I try to stay neutral on the subject in the book. You know, marriage is a tango. It takes two. Um, Alex and Jenny were very much in love, you know, especially early in the relationship. Um, They were always seen together and Alex handed out photos of him and Jenny to his fans and for the Hong Kong, you know, populace at large. Um, Well, I'm sure it's initially fun, but being in the spotlight, having the media pry into every moment of your Mm -hmm. life has to take its toll. The press did get into Alex and Jenny's business, you know, twisting tales about their parents' stories of Alex with other actresses, and you know, they were just trying to sell their papers, and some just didn't have any scruples. Because they were like the power couple of Hong Kong, weren't they? Let's let's yes. not let's not be around the bush. They were, they, they were like Sunny and Cher. They were the yeah. Sunny and Cher, yeah, absolutely. Not only is he this, you know, big movie star, she's singing around the world, and that's got to put a strain on any relationship. Well, yeah, yeah, and plus, um, you know, it's well known that Jenny controlled their finances, and she gave him an allowance. Um, you know, that sounds a bit demeaning, but he seemed at least publicly okay with the arrangement. Mm. It wasn't until, uh, until their split did he make it known that he didn't like being on short leash. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, that, now it's not to say that Jenny was blowing his money. She, she bought him a, a green Jaguar when they got married. Uh, later birthday, she purchased him the white Porsche, which, you know, the one he died in. Um, so she bought him a lot of expensive clothes and they had various homes. Uh, but her assistant was an accountant and she supposedly had a good money sense. Yeah. And you know, that's why she just controlled the purse, purse strings. Yeah. yeah. And by this point, he was the highest paid actor, wasn't he? I mean, no one at Shaw Brothers was getting the kind of money he was getting. Yeah, he, he had a, a big fat contract You know, when, when he renewed. He was making some, some major bank. And I guess it just got to a point where he was just kind of like, you know, I want some more money. And, and you know, like she was just, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they did file for divorce eventually, didn't they? Well, yeah, they were actually, when the last time they met, they were at the lawyer's office, and they were, you know, going through the paperwork process. They already had been separated for a few weeks, a couple months, and uh, that was the last time, they, uh, from what I understand, the last time they saw each other. And then, you know, a few days later, she flew to Japan with her sister, and he went to the country club with his brother, and that's you know, when the accident happened, and so she never saw him alive again. We should talk about that fateful night, and it was a night, because it was was very Mm -hmm. late at night. So let's unpack this a bit. So he was somewhere with his brother, and they were scheduled to do a night shoot for for a movie. Is that that correct? Yeah, he was at the Clearwater Country uh, Golf Resort, which was fairly new. It just had opened the year prior. And they were, it was an exclusive members-only kind of place. And uh, he was supposed to play golf. He got invited to play golf that morning with a friend of his. But he had to go to court uh, for a speeding ticket, you know, a previous speeding ticket. So he couldn't go to the club. He had to go to court instead. That evening, he did go to the club with his brother. And then uh, later on, David and actor Wong Yu showed up around 10 o'clock and so forth. And they had to then leave because they were going to a bowling alley where Alex had some sort of night shoot. Mm. Um, so, and they left the club in two separate vehicles. And Alex was, he had his Porsche, but he wasn't driving. His brother was driving because Alex couldn't drive. He lost his, his license was suspended uh, from that earlier, earlier morning court uh, appearance. And, um, you know, I, I wonder if he hadn't gone to court, would he have played golf that day and then not gone to the club that evening mm. before the crash? Mm. I mean, it's all speculation, you know, if you believe in faith and it was truly his time, it would have happened no matter what the circumstances were, I guess. Mm. So anyhow, they departed the club, Alex in, in, in the Porsche with brother number three and his brother David and, and Wong Yu are another vehicle. And um, Tyler Monroe, okay, they would say that this accident happened on uh, Clearwater Bay Road, but Tyler Monroe was the name of the road. It was fairly new. It leads out of the resort, and it can be very treacherous. And I try to explain it in some detail in the yeah. book. Um, there's a movie, uh, I think it's a Charlie and Fat film, which uh, I can't recall the title, but they filmed on that road, so it kind of gives you a pretty good idea of what, mm. what the road is like. So there was some, there was some uh, construction going on near the Clearwater Bay Beach number two bus terminal. They were kind of going down a hill, but it was kind of winding a little bit. And, uh, you know, the Porsche kind of lost control. I mean, Porsche it had been just retrofitted with uh, racing wheels and so forth. It lost control, and apparently they hit these rails and caused the vehicle to flip. Now, if you've ever seen the footage or photos of the car, it's, it's pretty crushed. Yeah, um, yeah. 
Yeah, it's bad. Seat belt legislation wasn't was announced, but it wasn't in place at the time. And whether a belt would have saved Alex, you know, is not known. Yeah, he um, wasn't wearing a, a seat belt, was he? No, I, I don't believe he was. Um, he did get out of out of the the car, and Wong Yu saw him and tried to talk to him, and he asked him about his face or something like that. How's my face look? You know, kind of thing. And then I guess the shock then hit, and that's when he kind of collapsed. Um, mm. Unfortunately, by losing his license and not being the driver, he was he was in the passenger side. Now, in those vehicles, the car's battery was located on the dashboard of the passenger side, and that was dislodged during the collision. And the autopsy revealed uh, extensive injuries to his upper right torso, including a collapsed, a collapsed lung and ruptured liver, which caused uh, severe hemorrhaging. So, if he was the driver, I mean, granted, if he was the driver. The accident may not even happen. You know, we don't know, but mm. at least the battery would not have, you know, impacted his body. Um, Run Run has a marker installed at the, the crash site, and it's still there. I had never been there, but I included the GPS coordinates in my book. If anyone's ever in Hong yeah. Kong, you know, want to pay their respects. Yeah. yeah, that was his sort of memorial to sort of yeah. mark where where yeah. he did eventually lose his life but you're right he was the passenger he wasn't actually driving and the actual driver who was his brother did survive the crash yeah but he did he did he was in the hospital for a while his brother as well i mean he yeah. initially went to the hospital with alex and then went to a second hospital and then you know like i mentioned in the book you know there was uh, they had to go to court you know because for reckless driving wherever it was but the judge decided you know like hey the family suffered enough they've lost the family member we're not going to put any charges on him and they kind of let it all go, which is, you know, I guess the best thing to do. The inquest did show no no one was drunk, there was no drink driving, and they kept pretty much to the, to the speed limit, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, I, I, they weren't racing. I mean, there are tales that the two cars were racing. Um, it's just a very treacherous, windy road. And even if you're doing mm -hmm. 30 or 35, going down a steep incline, you know, back and forth, back and forth, one little, you know, wrong of turn and, you know, you're going to lose control and, and there you go. So um, mm. it was just a one in a million kind of freak accident. It's just, mm. it's just unfortunate. Alexander Fusheng was so young when he died. He was 28. Um, mm. As a mark of respect, they, they kept his uh, dressing room, didn't they? Yes, they dismantled it after 33 years. There was no fanfare, no, hey, let's bring in the press. And No, it was just they're, they're doing their own thing with that, those buildings now, whatever they want to do. And I'm amazed that it lasted this long. That just goes to show that, um, you know, that Alex was, I mean, Shaw Brothers had so many, you know, incredible talents, but Alex was just, you know, someone that, that people loved very dearly. And yeah. uh, the shrine lasted yeah. that long is a testament to him. His death affected the production of quite a few movies. We've already mentioned that, you know, the way that they worked their actors at Shaw Brothers meant that um, there was a good two or three films that he was making at the time that, that he did die. Um, cruelly, one of them being his directorial debut. He was in the process of making that that step behind the camera when he died. Right. Um, but also the eight diagram pole fighter, which is, I would say, probably the best kung fu film ever made. Yeah, um, great film. Tell us a little bit about the story of that film. The production was so affected by Fu Sheng's death, wasn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. And and when. Uh... Kara Way, I interviewed some years back. She told me that um, Bagalung rewrote all Alex's parts for her. Because like it was at the end of the movie, it was supposed to be Alex and you know Gordon Liu was supposed to you know be in the final fights. But uh, now Kara Way takes over Alex's, so she kind of he he rewrote all those parts for her. And uh, you know even Gordon said that um, he he was very emotional in those in those uh, scenes. You know after Alex died. Um, I think, I mean, the fact that the movie came, even came out is amazing because, I mean, basically he mm. disappeared halfway through the film and he has no resolution. He just, he's there and then all of a sudden he's gone. And, you know, where do you go? What happened to him? So I wish yeah. they, I wish they had addressed that somehow, you know, like they. Yeah, they, it's you know, not he, addressed, is it? <laughs> he no, does just not. disappear like, from the know, film. You could have put something into it, like, you know, hey, where's, where's, you know, someone's, oh, he went to the temple. Well, now I'll never see him again. Oh, okay, you know, Buddha, yeah. something, you know, anything. Just don't yeah. let it let it drop. But I can understand, you know, at that time, emotions were very high, and and they just were trying to get the movie done, and you know, they did the best they could with what they had. I'm talking to you from the UK here. There was no way of getting Shaw Brothers films when I was growing up. I had Treasure Hunters, but 
that uh-huh. that was actually the first time I saw Fu Sheng in a in a movie with Treasure Hunters. But it was really hard to actually get hold of his movies, and that has affected the way he's remembered, particularly in the West. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the um, you know after uh, Black Belt Theater in the early eighties and. Uh, there really wasn't, like you said, it was very difficult to um, get these films. When Celestial came out in the early, you know, zeros, and they started presenting these remastered DVDs, it was like Christmas every day. Yeah. I mean, I would get them every week or whatever. I get them in the mail from, from a, a DVD house in, in in Hong Kong, and it was amazing. It's like you know, you're watching these movies for years, and they're all blurry, and you can't understand the subtitles, and it's, they had a little kind of like otherworldly feel to them and then all of a sudden you see them like crystal clear yeah. it's like whoa it's like I mean your brain's on fire it was, it was amazing yeah. and, um, and I'm glad I'm so glad they did that because I mean it, these movies were, were becoming you know lost to time and they could have eventually just you know faded into oblivion yeah. but thanks to you know their efforts Many many generations of film fans are going to now see you know Fu Shang and all these short films. Yeah, it seems so remarkable that it wasn't done sooner. Like they were perfectly happy or prepared for all of these movies to almost be lost to time. It seems, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I heard that these these films are kind of disposable to to the Hong Kong, and you know, they make yeah. them, they get their money for them, and then they're done, and that's it. There's no you know. You don't go back and look at a movie from 20 years ago. That's unheard. You just make a movie, you show it to the people, you make your cash, and you move on to the next film. Mm. Um, and I think it's because of, of the West. You know, we kept these films alive. You know, in America and UK and elsewhere, we kind of we traded the tapes and so forth, and we kind of just kept this fire burning until you know Celestial came along and said, "Hey, look, look what we can do." You know? Yeah, it's fascinating. And when you've got people like Quentin Tarantino, who's like ref- outwardly referencing Shaw Brothers movies, like in through his his films, like Kill Bill. I mean, there is still so much popularity for these uh, films in the West, isn't there? Particularly, absolutely. I mean, and and you know, it's the the legacy of Alexander. I, I don't know if he would have um, been as popular. If he's if he stayed alive, I mean, look, look at T Long. Now he's a big actor and so forth, but he doesn't have that kind of legendary status that Alex does because Alex died at a young age. Mm. And I think when you die at a young age, you you establish yourself with this legacy. Look at Mozart and you know John Lennon, even Princess Di, um, Bruce Lee. All right, Bruce Lee, he's, he would have been pushing eighty if he was still alive. Yeah. So imagine if he stayed alive and kept making movies. He would have made some clunkers. They wouldn't have been so good. Yeah. And he wouldn't he would he wouldn't have that, that draw that he had today. I, I know I shouldn't speak badly about Bruce. Probably have ninjas at my door in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I mean we should also say that it was shortly after his death that, that Shaw Brothers actually stopped producing films full stop. They then converted and just went straight into just purely doing uh, television. So do you think right. Fu Sheng would have survived that changeover? Um, you know, speculative, of course, but, um, yeah, he said he, he just did it, did made films because it was just something to do at the time and yeah. he wasn't going to stay in the, his whole life. Um, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, you know, they could have, Jenny was making, you know, money and he could have just, you know, went on the road with her and been, been kind of, you know, part of her, her career for a while and they could have just retired. I mean, look at Jenny now. She's, she's working some sort of, you know, farm over in, Ta- in Taiwan now. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it's hard to picture. I was in or sitting on the farm, you know, in a rocking chair there and just kind of like, you know, twiddling around. Yeah. But I mean, you know, we all get old, you know, we can't maintain, you know, that, 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 uh, that status forever. So yeah. it's, it would be interesting to, to have seen what, what he would have done with his uh, later life. But again, We'll never know. Yeah. We just have to enjoy what he did bring to the table. Jenny, your writer, uh, is still still with us, obviously. She did finally have a, a, a child, Melody. Um, and mm-hmm. this, I didn't know, this is outlined in your book, that she then went on a talk show relatively recently, I think within the last sort of 10 years or so, it might even have been less than that, where she finally admitted who the father of her child was, and it's Fu Sheng. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I try to, again, be neutral on that topic. Um, there's some in the family that don't want to accept that, and some, some you know, have. Um, you know, if you look at Melody, she looks just like Alex. I mean, she looks like him. Yeah. It's, it's like a spitting image, you know, it's crazy. Um, and I kind of just left it, you know, in the book, like, you know, no matter what we believe, Jenny is going to love her daughter no matter who the father is, and... I mean, whether it's 
you know, it, it's nice to think that the idea that it, it is Alex's daughter, um, but you know, without you know, blood tests or something like that, you know, I just had to like leave it in the air there for let the let the readers decide. Yeah. Um, but you found out that 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 was a process that sure actors did around freezing their sperm. That was a thing that that, that that's that's what an article that that Jenny that it was in that Jenny um. She, she was interviewed, and that's how I found out about it. Yeah. So, um, it's you know, it, it's kind of weird, you know, to think about it like that. But um, yeah, it's uh, it is what it is. And now we'll see how good you are. That's the other thing about Alexander Fusheng's work is that even if you're not really familiar with the Shaw Brothers and uh, some of those great movies that they produced, Alex is in quite a fair chunk of some of the some of the best <laughs> Shaw Brothers movies that that were made. Uh, so it's quite a good entry point, isn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, like the Venoms, uh, Fusheng, Tilong, David Zhang. I mean, you, you get into those films, and then you kind of branch out, and you, I mean, you get into Chang Chen and Lago Long. You branch out. Watch some Sun Chung films and Sure You Win films, and that's what happened with me. All I knew was the Venoms, you know, initially, and then I, you know, I started getting into Shang films, and I got into these other films, and and, and then and I even branched out beyond the Shaw films, and I started watching, you know, Chief Wen Chung and his various independent films, and. You know, I built a, I built a fairly large collection in a short amount of time. It's definitely true to say that there is a shortage of uh, great writing around the Shaw Brothers, particularly in the English language. So I think anyone who's going out of their way to document this stuff, to research it, to actually put books together on this on this subject is, is definitely sorely needed. So you're doing a great job, <laughs> Terry, whatever, you know, if this is a starting point or whatever this, this book... Uh, becomes it's um it's a really it's a really great read thank you i appreciate that i mean i you know i wanted to do something for the genre of films that i've enjoyed for so many years and hopefully when i'm long gone you know my book will still be around and people will you know enjoy it and continue to enjoy the shaw films um it's just a, a part of my life uh, i've been watching shaw films since the 70s and i can't imagine um you know my youth without you know having come from movies that it was just was just, that was just part of me yeah. you know terry thank you so much for your time today and for talking to me for this i uh, no, no worries ben i enjoyed it i'm glad i'm gonna say hi to everyone out there thank you for your support and uh keep watching those shaw brothers films you know thank you so much terry you take care hey thank you ben you have a good day all right terence j brady there thank you so much terry for taking the time to talk to me for allowing the time to geek out about all things Shaw Brothers and Alexander Fusheng on what would have been his 65th birthday. It's kind of hard to think what Fusheng would be doing now. He did die so young. He was only 28 when he died. So I don't know if he did make it to 65, who really knows what he would be doing now. However, he did, of course, leave us with a very strong track record of very enjoyable martial arts films which i do urge you to jump into and check out if you haven't done so already they are available on amazon prime courtesy of celestial pictures who've done such a wonderful amazing job in in presenting those films in pristine quality before i do head off today i did want to say a few thank yous i have actually got a thank you message that's been written by terry himself He has a few thank yous that he would like to share, so I said I would read this out for him. The message says, To my editor, John McConnell, I appreciate his tireless efforts and withstanding my seemingly endless questions about commas. To my cover creator, Kung Fu Bob O'Brien, a very talented and dedicated artist to the genre. Check out his work at kungfubob.blogspot.com. And a big thank you to my wife, Monica, for all her assistance and having to endure everything Fu Sheng for six years. Finally, I would like to give my respects to the Chung family. I did the best I could with the tools that I had, and I hope I've honoured Alex's memory with my efforts. Well, I for one think that he has. Thank you so much, Terry, for your message and for speaking to me 
for today's episode of the show. Head over to fushengbio.com for more information and links to buy the book. It's called Biography of the Chinatown Kid. Go and check it out. All it remains for me to say today is a huge thank you to you, the loyal Foo follower who has listened to this episode right up to the very end. Thank you so much for doing so. Your reward will be another episode of the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast heading your way in two weeks' time. In the meantime, please do take care and I will speak to you again very soon on the Kung Fu Movie Guide podcast. Okay, take care and bye for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>